0: Hi all and welcome back to Daymond All the Hell. I'm Kelly Gibson and Tracy and I are a little amped up today because Woo! we just went on Good Morning
1: Washington. And I'm Tracy Deeds and I don't know that I've ever had so much fun, <laughs> so fun. with you <laughs> <laughs> as that moment. It was so exciting to talk about how much we love each other. We it, never get to do that because we're always fighting over <laughs> dumb shit.
0: It is fun to like sit back and realize or think about why it is that we do this and why we like this and that kind of stuff. So that was really fun. We had an awesome host, um, Eileen. Thank you very much. And we got to talk about why it's so important to have friends that don't think just like you. And for those of you that listen to this show, often you know that Tracy and I often disagree. Um, but it was very fun. And the clip is out, so you can listen. It's on our Facebook page Um it's everywhere. We've, we've put it everywhere. Um, so, let us know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, when we were sitting in the green room, we're not really going to talk about this today, but when we were sitting in the green room, we saw like some clips from the R. Kelly interview <laughs> and everybody in the green room was like, that guy is crazy. He I mean, he nuts. lost his
1: marbles in that interview. Right. Yeah. He's in jail, though. Like he's been indicted. He's he he's out on in, bail, I think. He's out on bail because yeah. he had to go find the money Yeah. because he didn't have the money because yeah. he spent all the money. I have some
0: feelings about giving him the platform to do the interview in the first place. Like. Do I think that Gal King should have given him an hour or whatever it was to like defend himself? I'm, I think that's kind of bullshit.
1: But he's saying from his side of the story it, that that the parents of the two girls that were locked in his were basement, locked in his basement, which he says they weren't locked in his basement. That the parents sold them, like they basically paid. It's all crazy. Lunce. And it's, or or he was paying them, and as long as the money kept going to the parents, the parents were fine with them being locked in his basement. I don't know. It's all it crazy. just seemed like a total also, there shit are show. Ten counts against him. 10. So yeah, go. You can't have sex
0: with children. I don't think Ever. that he should be able to have a platform Correct. to talk. So anyway, it was fun. We had a blast. Um, also we are drinking celebratory champagne and we'll take a picture and put it on the Dame it All to Hell cocktail party page on Facebook. But if you guys are drinking any cocktails you
1: like this week, join us there. And, uh, Also, and if you love us, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And even if you hate Hate us, us. that's fine, too. Just don't give us a bad rating.
0: I think that you should say that you love Kelly and hate Tracy, because I think that's what most people think.
1: That is such bullshit, and that is so not true. Yeah, I think it's true. Everybody thinks that I'm the rational person and you're crazy. So (laughs) So this week, Tracy picked an article about toxic masculinity, because you
0: know... How much she loves toxic masculinity. Also, an article about how we need men.
1: So this is a real it's a real departure for our Tracy D. This is fun because you know I don't need no man. Uh, Yeah, right. We talk about that all the time. And I do. The article is in Huffington Post, and it's talking about how good men uh, can fight toxic masculinity. Allies, women, feminists
0: need male allies in 2019. I don't know that we will in 2029, but in 2019, women need men.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she just decided <laughs> to lay it all out. Really, like we haven't even started drinking yet, and she's
1: already getting sassy. Oh yeah. Um, I don't even know. What yeah, I shut, her, say right now. Up, <laughs> so I shut her right up, guys. I shut her right up. She's got you. no words for me. God. But it
0: is true that women can take the reins and run with the ball and do all the things, and they can and they move have to do that. Right, that is they critical. Can push limits Absolutely. and call people out, but when w- when a, when a woman that's trying to make change in the world has a partner that is a man that is also making inroads in in circles that are
1: more penetrable by men
0: <laughs> it's, it's like better a Freudian slip more, there. Thi- more things change
1: <laughs> <sighs> so okay, the, the, one of the reasons i picked this is because i have always sort of screamed and shouted from the rooftops that we don't need men. We don't need men. Get on the train. Women are killing it, and we are. All okay. of that is happening. But it is also very nice to have male counterparts that are willing to back us up or say something when a situation is um, awry or when something negative is happening. Most certainly at conferences. I, I mean, I I know of uh, a gentleman that helped out a woman. I don't want to say helped out, but basically stood up. Um, when a woman was groped, technically sexually assaulted, actually at a conference a few weeks back, he actually said something like he, he helped, he was there, he defended her and yeah. was a witness. And, um, I don't want to, I can't say too much cause I don't, you I don't, don't want to let get, anything. At, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm, Any I'm, I'm stumbling, but there are men that are willing to stand, stand up and do that. And I think that actually makes a difference.
0: And if I may, and I wouldn't have said that.
1: a a year ago.
0: Right. And if I may, I think that, um, I think the perception of a male ally and the power that that can hold for the advancement of that man is also sort of untapped, right? I mean, it's unexplored. You know, women have sort of been on this fight screaming from the mountaintops, we can do this alone. And as we say all the time, everything's better when you come together as a community even if there's men in that community. So absolutely. I think that having allies, in this case male
1: allies, but... I mean women allies too. Absolutely. Which we've totally seen with the Me Too movement all of us sort of coming together.
0: I think Dame It All the Hell alone is going to stop the whole women being terrible to women thing.
1: I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. We're going
0: to need a lot more women to listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the record, Tracy Dietz has admitted that women need men sometimes.
1: Yeah? Well, I mean, yes, we need them sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of Late at night with door. my husband. Right? <laughs> like I, I don't need him for that. I want him. There's a difference between need and want, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back,
0: we have some guests. It's been a while. So stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Dame It All the Hell, guys. We are back with guests today, which we're super excited about. We have Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan, who are joining us from North Carolina, and they wrote a book called You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. So thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for having us.
2: It's a it's real awesome. honor. Bethany,
0: why don't you start by introducing yourself and then Maggie after that? Um, sure. My name is Bethany Johnson. I currently
3: work as an instructor in history and a research affiliate in communication studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And the book that I wrote with Dr. Quinlan, who will introduce herself in a moment, um, discusses some potential health crises that uh, mothers with young children will face throughout what we call the life cycle of early motherhood. That's preconception through the early toddler years. And we went and found that there were some pretty wild stories around that from the early 20th century, and we trace that through um, what it looks like today on social media.
2: And so that's that's what uh, we focus on in our book.
0: Awesome. Dr. Quinlan? And
2: I'm Maggie Quinlan. I'm an associate professor in communication studies. I'm interested in exploring how communication creates, resists, and, and possibly transforms knowledges about the body. My research interests tend to focus on issues related to medical expertise and ways in which we can empower individuals within and outside the U.S. medical establishment. Hmm.
0: Wow, that all sounds super interesting. So, um, so that the book you're doing it wrong. Tell us a little bit, Dr. Quinlan Maggie Quinlan, about um, about why you guys landed on this topic in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm. I think as we both were starting the the journeys towards motherhood it didn't quite happen the way that we both expected it to that <laughs> I um, I knew that I was probably going to start a family in my mid to late 30s and got married um, in in my 30s and was on the tenure track line and trying to figure out how I would integrate a family um, and you know throughout that I was faced with questions of what does it mean to be a good mother? What sort of decisions do I need to make to make myself preconception ready? Um, And then I came into into contact with Bethany Johnson, who's a historian, and she had been studying um, the history of childbirth and some of those issues. And so we connected really quickly around that. And during our, our conversations, I learned about her infertility journey, and, you know, right away we found a connection about how we could potentially work together to improve doctor-patient communication, how we could people think a little bit deeper about some of the decisions that we make around around some of these areas as we were living through it. So in many ways, this book acted like a therapy for me um, as I was, you know, trying to make sense of the messages that I was getting on social media. Um, as well as interacting with healthcare professionals and, you know, what what to do in those situations.
0: Mm-hmm. I love at the end of the day that what we talk about, certainly on this podcast, but just as like working moms in general, that is that it's really hard to do that. It's hard to have a baby, just like hard stop category one. It's mm-hmm. hard to have a baby. <laughs> and then it's hard to raise them certainly in the, the period that you describe in the book from birth to early toddler, where up is down and down is up and you don't sleep or you're Mm -hmm. not eating or you're whatever it is. And then when you, and then to sort of add being a working mom on top of it, it it gets, it gets heavy pretty fast. So I think that it's, I think it's interesting no matter what any of us do at the end of the day, we often struggle with that, how to, how to have the baby and then in, integrate them into a life that we've been building since we've been in high school or before. So that's, mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's something that a lot of people can can relate to. So, um, Bethany, mm-hmm. as the historian mm-hmm. in this conversation, what I found was interesting when I was doing a little bit of um, pre-reading for this conversation was that you you remark that a lot of the elements of being a mother in 2019 are similar to being a mother in the Victorian ages. And, you know, Tracy and I are always talking about how different it is now. It's different. It's different. We're different. We're (laughs) doing things differently. But I find that to be a really interesting piece of this. Can you speak to that, why that's an important thing to know or what's the sort of significance of that comparison?
3: Absolutely. I think one of the things we do as historians is not to say it's the same now as it was then, but to find those those themes, those threads that travel through, because it can help it feel a little easier. You talked about how hard it was, and certainly it's so hard for all of us to figure out how to put a new person who we have to keep alive into the life that we've already (laughs) built. And so that is the same. Victorian women put a life inside of the life (laughs) that they were living and had to figure that out. And there are other similarities. When your baby is two weeks old and crying, no one knows. Right? We have a list of things we go through. Does the baby have gas? Is the baby tired? Is the baby wet? Is the baby hungry? Is the sun shining in the baby's eyes? Um, you know, there'll be some things that are different. Maybe today a parent would say, "Is my music too loud?" That's probably not something a Victorian woman would have wondered about. but that those concerns, those questions, being in that space where, All the baby can do to communicate is cry, and you still don't know what that means. That is a long historical arc where in those moments where it gets really stressful, the historian in me says, this is not new. Other people got through this. You will get through this. So history, knowing that there's a long arc, even though things change over time, it anchors me and helps me feel secure.
1: Do you think that there is any possibility that women had it better back then than we do now.
0: <laughs> I mean, with the exception of medical advances, oh, right. Right. Less, if you less take of out, are if you take the, the message yeah. right.
1: I mean if you think about all the pressures that are put on women to work, don't work. Um, back then it just it seems like you just had a baby and you took care of it and men went out and hunted and, and gathered food. So, I, I don't necessarily think that it, it was easier. I'm just curious as, as a historian what your thoughts are on that. As we navigate the world of social media and, <laughs> exactly. and the different pressures facing women. Well, well I think even,
2: Go ahead, Maggie. Even just that there are so many babies in the hospital now, right, that there's more chance of, you know, germs being passed on, um, that the fact that you even have to bring um, the baby to the doctor in those first couple days when Bethany and I both had babies during flu season, which is the worst mm-hmm. time to go out of the house and, you know, bring your baby into the waiting room. And, you know, that women during twilight sleep were sort of pushing for more medicalized childbirth, and these were activists and suffragists and really um, informed feminist women who thought it was empowering, right, to be able to um, have a birth without pain, right? But it really wasn't that you didn't have pain, it was just you didn't have the memory of the pain. And so, you know, here we have so many increase in C-sections and, um, you know, a lot of the same same issues that women advocated for were now having to sort of figure out what what's working and what isn't, and you know, we sort of problematize some of those issues as we went through the manuscript.
3: I think too that um, you know Sarah Hale is a good example. She was the editor of the Godey's Lady Book, which is ladies' book rather, which is uh, one of the most. Um, famous and sort of extensive publications of the 19th century and she was a working mom um, and she says repeatedly in all of her letters and in many um, copies of this text that women should not work outside of the home. Um, Ironic because she so enjoyed her work and she had five or six children but the way that she made that okay was by saying you know My husband died, and so I'm I'm forced to do this, you know, grotesque public work, which I think she actually loved and found um, a lot of purpose in. And I think some of those conversations, again, while contextually are very different, the opportunities that women have now are totally different, legally, politically, economically, socially. um, All of those are totally, totally different. And yet you still have women saying, well, I have to do this work because it makes a difference. Or it's still very provocative to say, I'm doing this work because I love it or I enjoy it, period, the end.
1: Oh, I, w- we talk about this w- so much in this podcast. Women get to make their <laughs> own choices of um, what they want to do.
2: But that's, There's a lot of privilege in that statement, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that you can't just say women have a lot of choices because we're so embedded in the structures that we're in, right? That I had a baby who my first child was $12,000. Right it took us yeah. 2 years to pay that off. $25,000 in my first year with her on medical bills and she's a healthy normal baby quote unquote which I problematize those terms. So I don't have a choice, right? And I have a ton of privilege, right? But I am, you know, still getting messages about that I work too much, that it's too much stress, that I'm exposing my child to toxins that I should just quit. Right, that there are all these messages that I still have to process and figure out childcare and how to pay the bills. And I'm considered, you know, middle class, right, with a with a high degree. Right. So Maggie
3: has the choice to um, engage in a career that she loves. But once you put a child in that in our current medical system, even if you wanted to make a different choice about your work, those medical bills could keep you there. And so those are some of the things that we wrestle with in the book, too. Women have access to more options, but we still live within constraints of social expectations and then also just the sort of nuts and bolts of what things cost and how many hours there are in a day and I'm looking at, someone is watching my baby right now. That's why I could do this work here with you. And my mom didn't have those same options because she didn't get higher education. Um, And so I think Maggie and I wrestle with that a lot in the book too.
0: We talk, I I certainly, Kelly, talk a lot about why I can do what I do is because I have a partner who happens to be a man Mm -hmm. who is deeply uh, committed to home life, Mm -hmm. to keeping the children's lunch is packed and they're um, and organizing baby that you we know we have help three days a week to pick up the kids and get them fed dinner because our jobs require a lot of post. 9 to 5 networking in order to be successful and Mm -hmm. I describe a lot about how I wouldn't be able to do this had I had you know a quote unquote traditional husband who perhaps does not say that home things are necessarily a a dad's things but you know Tracy and I talk a lot about hopefully that expectation of, of husband and wife duties is changing certainly in sort of urban more progressive centers of this country not in sort of the more conservative rural centers but that is creating additional options for women with less of the social pressure according to us so do you guys do you guys feel that 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 perhaps change in roles traditional roles is creating less stressful options for working moms oh that's a good question
2: (laughs) no I I don't right because that's saying right that we expect women to work like they don't have children and raise children like they don't work that I I'm not able to get the child care that I need to do my job the way I'm expected to do it. I have a husband who is who is very involved, right? But at the end of the day, the reality is most women still end up doing a majority of the, the child rearing. And um, that, you know, the, that there are structural reasons for that. I have a flexible job, my husband has a flexible job, but the reality for most individuals is that, you know, we're not showing images of our caretakers on social media, right? We're not showing these parts of our lives that are allowing us to make certain health decisions or other decisions for our families um, through these lenses that, that we all see. And so everybody thinks everyone else is doing it and doing it the right way when there's so many of us who spend a lot of our time thinking about all the ways that we're doing things wrong. And, you know, at this point in my life, I think about, my child who has some developmental delays and it's, is it because we can't afford the care to be able to engage him in the ways that we would like to. And, you know, thinking about how to do this in a way that performs a, a certain type of mother that's acceptable in certain spaces and worker.
3: I think um, something else that occurs to me is that there, there is so much more interest in, um, you know, if you think about the traditional sort of mother, father, heterosexual partnership, um, I think queer families have often been more public about and had more success in sort of everybody throws in their effort on the pile. Um, But I've definitely seen a shift in hetero families in terms of both partners taking on more responsibilities. I think, um, the two two of the things that that kind of came up for us in this research is that you both have to have a stable job to make some of those accommodations. So um, it, it, there's a sense in which you have to have a certain status to to be able to say to your boss, "Um, I'm going to miss this meeting, but I'll come back in and work tonight, or I'll head the meeting next week, or so and so will take this case, or, you know, um, whereas if you work at Burger King, or Walmart, or a coffee shop, those might not be options that you have, even if the desire is there to share in that labor and in that nurturing. So I think, Um, And, you know, maybe you two have thoughts on this, but I think our policy sometimes can be behind where people are actually living. And I think certainly uh, workplace expectations trail a little bit what's going on with what people are willing to do in their families.
2: And, you know, just think about, too, I still don't know the health impact on myself, right? That I'm working through the night to keep all these balls up in the air. I'm feeding a baby at 3 in the morning, then I can't go back to sleep because you know, my to-do list is is going. So I'm working through the night. My hair is falling out, and it's not postpartum hair. It's stress-related hair, right? So I think we don't think about the, the long-term effects of of this for women, given the realities that we're in. And we don't have, many of us don't have the support that we need, that when we looked back in the postpartum um, care books in the Boston Lying-In Hospital, right, we saw that there were families gathered around helping and you know doctors coming to the women's houses to check in on them you know there was some complicated things happening in in those too. but immigrant women in the united states had better care than i have
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you know how how do we wrestle with that how do we you know look at you know compare what we have today and make some distinctions from the past and and how do we move forward in in the system we're in? And at this point, I'm pretty angry about it. Yeah,
0: Mm. I mean, I think you both just touched on giant categories that we could probably talk about for, you know, 48 hours in a row yeah, between sure. co-parenting and access to, you know, quality affordable health care for everybody and changing work structure and, and expectations and expectations yeah. and right. social. Right. It's it's heavy and we don't have time to talk about it today, but certainly some good food for thought in there. Just in sort of a closing moment, why don't you each take a second and tell us what it is about writing this book that has sort of changed your perspective? And, you know, I, I, I tend to be an optimist, so I I would encourage if, if there has any outcome that's changed your perspective in a positive way, but I'll take a critical way as well. What about, why don't you start, Bethany?
3: Um, so I think for me, um, I can take a much lighter and easier stance in most cases, Um, if I'm not right in the middle of a middle of the night feeding crisis or something, (laughs) when I look at social media, because we studied it so closely for the last number of years, I'm able to say, you know what, this isn't, the context of this is sort of off. I don't need to take that on. I need a break. I'm going to shut this off and um, give myself some space. So it's been positive that I can take on a little less and be a little more measured in the way my exposure works with social media. Um, And I'm able to take on a a little less of the guilt um, sometimes and put things in perspective. And then I think a critical piece that I actually see as a positive is that understanding of this incredible experience that some of these women were having in 1905 where someone came to their house every day for three weeks to check on their bodies and make sure they were okay after birth so that they could give their best to their babies. Even with the complications of that model, it makes me think like, my gosh, we've done this. We have done this, and it did not bankrupt anyone. What would it look like for us to imagine that the bodies of those who gave birth deserve this kind of care and what would that mean so that Maggie wouldn't be having the struggles that she is having now. It gives me a place to do some advocacy work from and a real passion to do that. And those are both things that I've been able to take away from this book project.
2: Awesome. For me, I think I used to be pretty judgmental, right? When I would see um, women going to social media and posting about different health crises they were having, either their child or um, with themselves, for example, you know, just saying, um, you know, my child has this rash, right, what should I do? And then everybody's saying, oh, it looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like that. Nobody's saying, go to the emergency room, right, because if that mother could go to the emergency room, right, she's probably thought about it, but the copay, right, she can't, you know, so you have to weigh into all these discussions, And, you know, constraints that women have that is why they're going to social media, right? If they go to their doctor, women have a long history of being called hysterical, right? Especially in the postpartum stage. And so this is the way women have historically been treated in medicine. And so they're not going to their doctors because they're going to get unsolicited advice that is or is not helpful given the situation that they're in. And so, you know, I'm very careful about what I say to others and regret some things that I've said. Um, and, you know, sort of thinking, thinking about how we can can open up these lines of conversation, of potentially putting people in, in dangerous situations.
0: Tracy and I always talk about how women are better when we work together and talk openly and honestly. So thank, thanks for that. And thanks for joining us, guys. Um, and uh, everybody should look out for for the book and give it a read. Seems like it's going to Bring up a lot of questions to the surface. I have a chance to really explore that. It's going to make me think, <laughs> so, make yeah. me think differently. <laughs> the book is You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, written by Bethany Johnson and Margaret M.
1: Quinlan. So thanks Thank for joining us. You. Thank guys. you both so much. Thanks Thank for you. Having us.
0: Well, that was fun with Maggie and Bethany. I hope that if anyone has some free time and is feeling like their brain is particularly on point, they can go for it and read it. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to read it. I'm not sure. Um, I, I might have to, like, do it in in, uh, in small doses because it is thought-provoking. But thought-provoking is good. Absolutely. Tracy Dees, tell us about that time when women had to start after men in a bicycling race oh. and then and then that didn't really work.
1: So if anybody's heard about this story, so there was a cycling race in Belgium and the leader of the female pack forced officials to momentarily halt the woman's race after her grueling pace caught up to the men who started 10 minutes earlier. Yeah, so all the
0: men went and then 10 minutes passed and there was like, all and the cars
1: sh- behind the men and everything. Two, basically, two separate races. Correct. And she is whooping ass and catches up <laughs> to the men and starts to pass the men. And they're like, "No, no, no!" They, they called can't. the race, right? Right. They they're like eh. they stopped it. They're no. like, "You have to slow down. You have to stop." <laughs> they made her stop to let the men get further ahead of her, which totally got in her head. Which it absolutely, of course. Oh yeah, you and then it that shit destroyed. Up. It destroyed the rest of her race, and she ended up coming in like. 87th, or 74th. Well, It's just ridiculous that that was allowed
0: to happen. The race organizers made a shit assumption, right, that even the slowest man would still be faster than the fastest woman, right? Which is you know, Tracy and I have a lot of ridiculous conversations about a man's strength against a woman's strength. And Tracy often says, well, if you put the strongest man up against the strongest woman, the man's always going to be stronger. But that, and I always push back and say, yeah. that's not a fair comparison, right? It's about the strength, physical strength, what is what is achievable, by a women's biology and a man's biology. So these people at this race were like, no, seriously, a woman. I mean, even the s- fastest woman, the strongest woman can't can't catch up to the I don't, man. That's I crazy. I
1: don't think that they were trying to be dismissive about it when making that assumption. I think that that is a, I mean, it is unlikely that the fastest woman is going to catch up with the slowest man in a race like this. It is. Well, it turns out it's actually quite likely because it happened. It did. Yeah. And that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it all back. Take it back. Roll it back. Yeah. But even outside of that, I cannot believe they stopped her and made her wait. Like, she lost. I mean, she lost the race. Yeah. She could have. Fuck you. She could have broken Not you. Those guys. Yeah. Yeah, fuck those guys. I can't believe that happened today. No good. Right? In 2019. You know who else
0: I want to say fuck you to? Roseanne fucking Barr. Oh, God. Like, that woman just needs to, like, peace out, she's got she's got a problem with the Me Too movement. Right. Like,
1: hard stop. Just well, like overall, I can't I can't believe her response was because they're hoes, <laughs> right? I mean, so bar said it was recently suggested to her that women who made allegations of sexual harassment and assault as part of the hashtag Me Too movement were there in the room because they thought they were getting a job fifteen years ago. <laughs> Well, because they're hoes, Barr said. Like, if you don't run out of the room and go, excuse me, you talk to me like that. You don't do that to me. Excuse me and leave. But you stayed around because you're like, well, I thought maybe he was going to give me a writing job. Well, you ain't nothing but a hoe. A Holy fuck. She's just like, so she hates black people. She hates women.
0: She undoubtedly hates gay people. And what? It's like Roseanne bar Barr is like still having a platform. Which does she have some sort of, where did you say it? In some sort of radio interview, right? So her
1: whole point is. The Candace Owens show. That whatever women that is. knew what they were doing. There were women. They Using were their wiles to get ahead. And listen, that happens. We talked Absolutely. about that
0: so much at the beginning of this podcast. I know. That you and I, in fact, at one point used our wiles.
2: Well, I mean, not, we didn't like, have sex never, with anybody. Right. Yeah, but like right. a
0: little, you know, I.
1: You smile and a smile, and you like
0: you know you like take it easy. I feel like we're not doing that
1: anymore. Not doing that (laughs) at at all all anymore. It's like amazing. I don't have to even. I mean, there were some things that happened at the reads. I don't know if I told you about them, but I totally called. It wasn't. It wasn't super bad. I mean, it wasn't anything that was super terrible. But somebody just made a a passing dumb comment and I ripped them apart and then another female colleague actually got in their face after I left. <laughs> she told me she's like, I told him that that is not acceptable and that is inappropriate behavior in front of somebody that he works with that is a woman. There you, go. Like, you go. There you go. So that it stuff's happening. Yeah. So
0: if we're not changing anyone else with this podcast, we're certainly changing <laughs> ourselves, each other. <laughs> each other, which I will take. Yeah. Rose Kelly's going to work
1: for Trump <laughs> in 2020. I'm just kidding. It's just
0: like, it's, yeah, like never gonna happen a- Ever, Um, There was a very cool article that I read in the Sunday New York Times this week. And I put it on the Dame it all to hell Instagram story about women, both women, like um, startup executives, women that were like starting companies and starting which needed investors and then a group of just women investors. So there is a handful of funds with only women and women's money that have made an effort to invest in women entrepreneurs. So one of the one of the groups is called Able Partners and they have a fund of, you know, 10 million bucks or whatever it is. And they partnered with The Wing, which we've talked about on the show before, which is a women's only shared it's like a club, it's shared it's shared workspace, but it's also they have like speaker series and um, and all that kind of stuff. There's there's one in New York, one in LA, there's one here in DC, and they called the gathering Wingable. And then there was like other people that other women that volunteered their time with these startup entrepreneurs to help them get their pitch ready for this gathering. So like p- prime their powerpoints and how does your how do your remarks go? How do you prove that um, you're worthy of an investment? And then they all got together and the article is hysterical. It's like the, the event was chicer than any, any event. And there was like delicious, delicious canapes and delicious wine. And it was a really well appointed. The only, it, it remarked that the only men in the room was the one running the projector and those carrying around appetizers that everyone in the room were women and they were all like super powerful women. And, and there, you know, Tracy and I've talked about this on the show before that there is such a small percentage of investment that go to venture capitalist money that go to women entrepreneurs. It's like less than 5%, less than 3%. And so there's this whole group of people that are like, well, that's crazy. So have you heard of Glam Squad? It's like new. It's an online thing where you can get people to come to your house to do your hair and your makeup. It's blown up. And so that's an example of some of these startup companies that these women are investing in. But they're not all about sort of quote unquote women things. And this idea that when, when women have the money and then women are committed to investing in other women, that it, it ends up being sort of this push, this this large push to start to ch- change norms. And I just thought that was really so interesting and such a boost and so refreshing that we're taking sort of this woman's feminist thing out of a crisis response Moment, right? We're not just reacting to bad treatment. We're starting to be proactive in supporting each other and not just like, oh, supporting each other in our emotions and our love, but like supporting each other to be successful, which I think is really cool.
1: I was trying to find, um, there was a woman that was on The Daily Show about a month ago. I sent you the article about it, and I feel like her name was Eileen. Oh. And she was with a company that was helping women uh, handle their money better. With inve- with investments and just, just getting personal financial concerns, personal health, financial yeah. and helping women get funding for uh, their startups yeah. and, and companies, and it was remarkable because she talked about how we often think that there's only one seat at the table yeah. for women, yeah, and that's just not true anymore. And the sooner that we all sort of embrace that philosophy and start helping other women, better it's um, going to be. Companies are better when when women are at the he- helm. We know that there are studies that companies are more profitable when there's more women on the boards. Um, all organizations work better when there are more women present. So this is awesome that they're doing that. So it's, it, gonna it, be great it's to telling see. because. In within weeks, within two weeks of announcing that this sort of
0: summit was going to happen, they opened an application process to become one of the people that got to pitch this room of investors. And they had more than 800 applications for 10 slots. And they hired two MBA graduates to look through all the applications and figure out which were the most promising candidates based on like a handful of very sort of distinct you know, like possibility for increased revenue in a short period of time. It wasn't a, you're going to do great work, buck up sister. It was like, prove it. Right. But we're going to leave that only for really, really smart women to shine inside of a group of people where they can feel trusted. And in fact, the article went on to describe that one of the people were up doing their pitch and sort of tripped over their words a little bit and this um known investor the one one of the women that started to Rent the Runway sort of shouted from the audience who now invests in other companies shouted from the audience you got this girl just keep going you know after she had tripped over her words so yeah. it doesn't have to be right you don't have to be a cutthroat person to succeed in a cutthroat space right which is something nobody ever believes I feel like
1: right I mean we you don't have to what did you say on the news this morning you don't have to you don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate see there (laughs) you have it
0: that's Tracy's new line it's like if we're the real housewives that would be her tagline
1: (laughs) I mean you we don't have to right we don't have to change who we are yeah so anyway or be terrible to each other in well, an effort to that get is successful, for right? Fucking so, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the sooner we're not terrible to each other, the better we will all be. A rising tide lifts all boats.
0: Oh, look at her. She's just <laughs> speaking in like quip, in quippy one liners now today, and I like it. <laughs> That's
1: gonna be on the podcast anyway. <laughs> uh, what an awesome day. What a fun this day. has been yeah, so yeah, much yeah. fun. All we did is it. talk about how much we love each other <laughs> and how much I've made you more like me. Anyway, yeah. keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by following at Dame at All. Awesome. See you next week, friends. Thank you.